The Paranet Podcast, a Dresden Files book club. Welcome to The Paranet Podcast with your hosts, me, Patrick Lunn, and... Me, Rob Davis. Fantastic. We have a brilliant episode for you guys today. We're going to be looking at uh, the series timeline of Dresden Files pre-Stormfront, picking out some of our favourite bits from that in our para-networking section. And then we're going to be moving in to our fourth episode on Summer Night! Summer Night! (laughs) Which is going to be fantastic. Um, We've got some really great bits to cover there, so I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Um, But yeah, first of all, talking about uh, the series timeline. So um, I know that other authors have done similar things, uh, but something that I love on Jim Butcher's website is that he has posted a timeline of the Dresden Files universe going right back to, uh, where are we are Going right back to 67 million years before the first book, <laughs> um, which is insane. Uh, and then we get um, so, so much put into a timeline, which... Um, is really really cool because um, I I know myself at least um, I, I there are times in the series where I'm like okay so does that mean that this person is older than this person or uh, would this person know of this person kind of thing um, and you can get a really really good feel for that with the timeline and and I think Jim has said several times that he draws from this as well um which is really cool because everything everything kind of fits with each other um giving it that that lovely like little like marvel universe kind of feel um yeah rob what's your thoughts on the on the timeline yeah i'm just reading for it now and there's like oh man it's it's really interesting anyway um but yeah i mean it You'll have mentioned, I mean, luckily it gives like a bit more detail here as well, as opposed to just, you know, this happened then. But it, you'll have mentions throughout the series of like, um, for example, in book three, we were introduced to uh, Paolo Ortega. And yep. it pops up again in one of the later books. But I mean, on, on this timeline, we get, you know, early 1500s, he becomes a vampire. And it goes a little bit more into something from the next book where um one of the characters is talking about how old he is and all that kind of shit. Um Yeah, I mean I don't think it's too spoilery. Uh especially no, the pre storm stuff. I mean I I feel a lot of it's more just kind of little little throwaway lines here and there. Like um and it just mentions of certain characters like you know, like members of the White Council like Ebenezer and stuff like that being like, Oh, you know, when you've been around as long as I have and someone will be like, oh, how long have you been around? And he's like, oh, about three to four hundred years. And that's like yeah. literally all the detail you get on that. But on here, it's got like the exact year he was born and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's some really, some really crazy bits. Like when Ebenezer and the current Merlin first met. Um, which is kind of fun. Uh, you've got a little bit about 
uh, where Dracula falls into the uh, the equation of the Dresden Files universe around the 1300s. Um, so that that's quite a fun one. Um, yeah, I'm I'm just uh, trying to pick out some fun. One bit that bits. I found interesting because uh, I have looked at this before when we first started the podcast, but like it was one of those mm-hmm. things where you kind of just breeze through it and you're like, oh, okay, and then you forget about it. Yeah, but um. Looking at it now, there's something that just... I don't know why it's never really occurred to me before, but with Ebenezer being about 300 years old, it didn't occur to Mm -hmm. me that Dresden's mother would have been, like, older than, you know, your average mum, I guess. But, um... Yeah. Like, the approximation of her birthday, like, approximately between 1797 and 1810, Maggie Le Fay is born. Yeah. Um, so she would have had quite a long life, meaning that Dresden's father was probably a bit of a toy boy. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and making making a bit more sense about like how she might relate better to like the the White King of the the White Court vampires and stuff as well. Mm. Um. So that, that's that's pretty interesting. Uh, I also like uh, there's one in in 1959, which is when the pay rate for wardens was set, um, <laughs> and, and since then the council hasn't adjusted for the cost of living. <laughs> um, but there's also a note that Harry might be making this up. <laughs> I love the weirdest which stuff. Right? You've got mention of um. I mean, this is kind of relevant to the book we're reading at the moment. Uh, Murphy's first husband is born in whatever year, um, 41 years before Stormfront. And in brackets, uh, they marry when she is 17 and he's 29. And yeah. I, I know it's established in the book that there's quite an age difference. But Jesus, 17 and 29. <laughs> like, what the, was he just hanging around outside her school? I mean,. I, I can I can say as as a twenty five year old man the thought of dating a seventeen year old is just horrendous. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, it's just. Uh, I'm not even sure. If, is is that legal in in America? I I honestly don't know as a I, British person. I I don't know. I mean, no, I'm not I'm not going to comment or anything because I honestly don't know. I know over here anything like that's just a bit weird. Yeah, I I would be very interested to to hear what the rules are in America. I guess if anyone wants to uh, email that. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's weird. it's weird how those lines are set. I guess um, like we have something in in England called the Romeo and Juliet law, which is if the, we have the age of consent, but then if there's eighteen months between the the two people, it's also uh, allowed. Mm. Um, because like uh, Romeo and Juliet, Juliet was like fifteen, and Romeo is like seventeen. Maybe I think that's I, about right. I can't remember, but I know there was like a weird age gap between them. Not weird, weird, but yeah. like they were just really young in the story. <laughs> uh, Mark Owen was born in the sixties on February the second, quite close to my birthday. Oh, Thomas Race, of course, was born on February fourteenth. Of course, that makes sense. To <laughs> But uh, born the day before me, so that's fun. 
Should we celebrate? Uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, we're only a couple of podcast episodes away from talking about my birthday, so... I mean, we'll, if, we, uh, if we keep recording on, like, the days we said, then the 14th falls on that, so... Yeah. Just, just saying. We'll have, we'll have a Thomas Race birthday. I think that'll be fun. Yeah, we'll just wear, uh, <laughs> we'll just we'll just wear like unbuttoned shirts and I don't know what what does he do? <laughs> I can't remember. We'll just not uh maybe not. Sounds a bit weird. I'll I'll not wear much around the house. You can do this whatever you want to do wherever you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, what date is Stormfront meant to be? I assume uh, two thousand. Yeah, it is. It's two thousand. Okay, so Thomas Wraith was born uh, thirty between thirty-one and thirty-two years before, so he was born in the sixty-eight. That would be mm. thirty-two years. Uh, so he would now be fifty-eight. Uh, no, fifty-two. Yeah, yeah. Him and yeah, they're they're getting on a bit. I mean. Looking at it here, uh, in um, Stormfront, Harry is 25, and he's been wizarding yeah. professionally for two years. Um, but, I mean, it, it says here that it could be within a year or two of the year 2000. Yeah, so I suppose there's a bit of... You can be a bit funky with it if you want. Yeah, I mean, I, I just take it from the year 2000, because I think that's when it was published, so... It just kind of makes sense in my head. Do you find the one just before Harry is born really weird? The sometime between August and October, Malcolm Dresden and his heavily pregnant wife, Margaret, visit the Lincoln Memorial. There's got to be some <laughs> kind of significance there. I'm, I'm sure there probably is, but I, I don't remember it ever being pulled out in, in the book. Um, maybe I we'll catch like it this time around. We need to make a list of some of the ones that are like... A bit like that, where you're like, why is that relevant? And then just keep it up as we're reading, so we can one day be like, it's finally relevant. That's because uh, Abraham Lincoln was a wizard. Oh my god. Maybe. And you never know. Seek his blessing. <laughs> Who knows? Um, <clears throat> yeah, the the... Then you've got the when Harry was six, his father dies with a brain aneurysm. Uh, according to Chaunt Zagaroth, this death was supernaturally engineered, but we don't know the specifics. Nope, um, still don't. And that still hasn't been touched on. That's very interesting. Um, oh, does it have? Have we had the birth of Michael anywhere? I can't see it. I've not noticed that. I mean, one, a couple of uh, a couple below that, uh, 19 years before Stormfront, mentions Michael killing Mavra's children and grandchildren. But I've not seen any other mention oh. of him yet. Uh, yeah, Mike, Michael was born uh, 43 years before Stormfront. Between 43 and 45 years before Stormfront. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Got it. He's like... Mid to late six, he's like our dad's age. Yeah, <laughs> that's not that weird, I guess. If you think of no, that, I mean, if you think of where we're at in this series at the moment, Molly's got to be like 
the age maybe Harry was in Stormfront. Yeah, so she was 12 before... Uh, so she was 12 during Stormfront. So she's like 32. She's older. Shit. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Very strange. There's also a really good continuity note here that uh, is noted that Molly's age has changed by a year um, between Death Masks and Winter Night. Um, and uh, I, I almost feel like this is Jim just being like, yeah, I, I noticed this. Apologies. Uh, <laughs> it must be hard to keep it all straight in your head, Infernus. Yeah. Definitely. Um so yeah, we're only going to run up to before Stormfront um, today because there are spoilers past that, as you'd imagine. Um, so I'm just seeing if th- what else there is. Uh, there's four to five years before Stormfront, Harry starts working for uh, Nicholas Christian at Ragged Angels Investigations. Um, I I still feel like there's there's room for a couple more good stories there. You know, I I completely agree. Um, I I feel like it's it's teased a lot that like there was this time when he was like this like uh, understudying investigator. It always makes me think of like um, whenever we get stories set in the the years when Batman was trained to be Batman yeah. and he's not quite there. Yet. Um, I I quite enjoy those stories as well because there's always like um. It's fun seeing the hero taking the journey they need to go through to, to become the hero you know, um, I guess. Um, and Christopher Nolan agrees with me because that Batman Begins kind of did that, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, three years before uh, Stormfront, Harry finds Mister the tailless kitten in a cra- in the trash can. That's nice. Oh, that is nice. <laughs> Um. Oh, restoration of faith is two to three years before Stormfront. Yeah, I'm fine. With I, don't, that. I don't know why. I always had it in my head that it was like a couple of months. Yeah, I mean that's how I always took it. Like everything that we've that we're aware of is before Stormfront, which I think is restoration of faith, and I think some of the bits in the graphic novel omnibus. Welcome to the Jungle, I think, is one of them. But yes, I, yeah, I, I always that. took it as being like, yeah, like if within a within a year at least. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Harry and Susan meet two years before Stormfront. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, Murphy is made a lieutenant a year before Stormfront. And then Thomas and Justine meet um, less than a year before Stormfront. That's very interesting for for more recent stuff. Hmm. Um, again, with the with the weird ages, Justine is about sixteen at that point, and Thomas is in his early thirties. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, I'm not trying to defend <laughs> it, but I, I guess it's with Thomas being how he is. I've just always assumed he's permanently been like looking youthful for like ever. 
Yeah, I mean, I suppose he would. He would look like a. He would probably look like a teenager in his thirties. Yeah, which is kind of creepy. But and, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like where we're at in the series now, Justine's like in her thirties. So. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> still weird. Um, still, still a little weird. Um, yeah, so that's that's pretty much. Uh, I'm just seeing if we've missed anything really big. Uh, one thing I did like, which I don't think has ever been pulled out in a book, is uh, quite early on, um, circa 1700. Nope, late 14th century. That's the one. Late 14th, 15th century. Uh, we learn about how Bob was bound to his skull. Um, so uh, someone called. Uh, Atini the Enchanter um, picked a skull uh, and this is from an interview with Jim. Atini the Enchanter picked it, Bob's skull, up on the cheap back in medieval France and the skulls and skulls weren't exactly uncommon. Atini himself probably had it for the reason that so many rights and sages had skulls hanging around to make their office look cooler. Atini though is one of is the one who originally laid out the enchantment on the skull to enable it to be a little home away from home for Bob. And he's been passed down wizard to wizard ever since. Oh, so that that's a fun little like side thing. I quite like that. Um, yeah. the The other one that um, so there's two more things I want to pull out. One is that uh, so we we go. It's all uh, BC AD, um, and then it goes to before Stormfront BSF, um, but. On zero, so C zero, uh, which is uh, during the times of Jesus, um, Nicodemus is born, which to me, again, really, uh, I, I feel like that reinforces the whole, like, he is Judas oh, story. Shit. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I mean... We we won't go too much into Nicodemus yet because he's the next book is his big uh, introduction, um, and he is one of I think both of our favorite villains in the series. Absolutely, uh, yeah, he is extremely I, cool. I quite like the one above it, um, two thousand BC, uh, birth slash rebirth of the Red King. Um, who, who's been briefly mentioned, I think, in Grave Peril, and maybe the, st- or maybe it was the start of this one, Summer Night. Um, mm. But it mentions he's about four thousand years old by the time we get to meet him. But then there's a little cheeky comment next to it saying he doesn't look a day over three thousand five hundred. Yeah, <laughs> which I quite like. That is fun. Um, I. Again, I don't, I don't want to spoil too much for when we get there, but I love the depiction of the Red King. Um, I think he's very, very cool. Um, so yeah, uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that I don't think, no, that there doesn't seem to be a mention of when Merlin, as in the original Merlin, um, existed or was around. Um, I mean, it only talks about the current Merlin, the White Council, yeah. and we know that he's the he's the most recent of many. So that's that's quite interesting to me. Um, 
yeah, I like the idea of that. Uh, I, I think uh, that would be interesting. To, I mean, I know that like Arthur, Arthurian legend is kind of like medieval, so it would be somewhere um, around like the thousands. Hmm. Um, but it'd be really interesting to know to know specifics. Um, so yeah. Cool. Um, I, there's not much more to say on this. It's just that you can play a lot of fun kind of. Uh, you find a lot of fun details like like we just have going through this list, and I, I really encourage our listeners to just go and uh, jump on. It's just Jim Butcher, uh, Jim Butcher dot com, and then uh, slash timeline, uh, or you can find it at the top of the page. And then there's this huge timeline that you can just have a have a look through uh, and you'll find loads and loads of like little fun things. I mean, we haven't pulled out everything there. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoy it. Um, anything else you want to say on it, Rob? Uh, not really. I mean, we'll, it's, we'll link it in the description, of course. Um, but no, there's, I think everything else I want to point out past the point we're reading at the moment. So I won't say any more on it. Yeah, there is also uh, a couple of things that are hidden that are massive spoilers, um, so that's quite good. Um, and the other thing that's uh, good is that there's character timelines, which we might we might pick up at another time uh, to talk about. But um, so you can follow Dresden's timeline, but you can also follow uh, Margaret Le Fay's timeline. Uh, you can follow. Um, Michael's kids timeline uh, and Michael himself um, and there's a few others like that that are definitely worth if you want to get it all straight in your head um, and for like theorising it's definitely worth taking a look at um, awesome yeah so uh, I think we'll uh, we'll take it over to the Dresden Files book club um, yeah so, Dresden uh, Files Book Club, uh, we we tell everyone every week, but just in case this is your first episode, uh, we are currently running through the entirety of the Dresden Files from start to finish, looking at uh, all comic books, board games, RPGs, um, and the main novels themselves in chronological order. Uh, we are currently on the fourth novel of the Dresden Files, which is Summer Night! Uh, we are... Uh, we do four chapters um, in a week, uh, and then um, each episode we do a summary of chapters from last time. Then we do a summary of this week's chapters. Then we do a little like book club discussion on what we like, what we don't, uh, any kind of uh, geeky bits that we like, any kind of literature bits that we want to talk about, um, and yeah, just really kind of diving in uh, and to references as well in the series. Both me and Rob have. Uh, I've finished the series so we can pick out bits that um, relate to things later or earlier uh, without being too spoilery of course um, but things that you might want to want to uh, keep an eye on as, as you see them uh, yeah so that's really cool um, so uh, this week uh, episode 4 of Summer Night uh, I'll be covering last time on Dresden Files 
So, uh, last time on the Dresden Files, we covered chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12 of Summer Night! Uh, chapter 9, uh, Elaine uh, had just visited Harry in chapter 8 uh, and hid in his bedroom as Morgan, uh, the Warden of the White Council, turned up at his door um, and basically just started like haranguing him, antagonising him, um, just trying to really trying to get Harry to break uh, and slug him, um, and Harry comes comes very close to attacking uh, Morgan, and then realizes that if he attacks a, a wizard of the White Council, specifically a warden of the White Council, it's like attacking a police officer. It's not going to go well for him in the long term, even if he manages to to kill Morgan, which would be very unlikely, as Morgan is able to disable Harry's wards with minimal effort. Uh, Morgan even uses Susan against Harry, uh, saying that it's his fault that Susan uh, was bitten and became a vampire and that Harry is now compromised in the war against the Red Court. Uh, Harry tells Morgan to get out of his apartment and Elaine comes out of the bedroom and turns down the offer to meet the White Council, saying that she would never deal with someone who would treat people the way that Morgan just treated Harry. Makes sense. Uh, Moving over to Chapter 10, uh, Harry has a super erotic dream about Susan. Um, uh, he then uh, wakes up, showers, tidies himself up um, after spending months looking haggard uh, and then heads down to his lab. Him and Bob start to talk about uh, a little bit about the cure that Harry's been working on for Susan's vampirism. Bob explains that there is no cure for vampirism and that many have tried and that Harry is unlikely to find anything to help Susan. Uh at that point, uh, things kind of change pace a bit, and Harry told, tells Bob that he is looking into the murder of the summer night Ronald Raoul. Uh, they talk a little bit about the courts. Um, basically, uh, Bob says uh, that he is not into the Winter Court at all, um, and in fact wants to get as far away from it as possible. Uh, he also says that um, Summer is left weaker with its night gone and that someone will have stolen the night's power. Uh, knowing that you have to be a certain power level to take down a knight, Harry now has a starting point and a list of suspects uh, of who are capable of killing uh, Ronald Raoul and taking his power. Um so that takes us into chapter 11. Uh, Harry poses as a delivery man to enter Ronald Raoul's depart- uh, department, apartment, uh, keeping his wizard senses active in case anything sticks out. Um, he is essentially, uh, well, he, he's shocked to find a man inside Ronald Raoul's apartment who looks like a, uh, a cartoonish thug. Um, at first, Dresden's kind of like, oh, well, I, I could take him and, and, and I'll, I'll kind of maybe knock him out or um, or, or, or sneak around him or something. Um, the man then lifts a sofa one-handedly and Dresden realises this is not a man. This is some supernatural being pretending to be a man. Uh, the uh, being starts to leave and then smells the air and and says that he smells magic. Uh, he turns to confront Harry uh, and reveals his name is Grum and that he is an ogre. Um, 
Harry sends a blast of fire at Grum and it doesn't slow him down one bit as magic has little to no effect on ogres. After a brief scruffle, Grum reverts back to a human disguise and takes leave uh, with some of Ronald Raoul's stuff. Harry looks at what he plucked out of Grum's satchel during the scuffle, a photograph of Raoul with four other people. That takes us to chapter 12, where Harry leaves the apartment as the police arrive, avoiding the authorities and driving away in the Blue Beetle. Harry decides his next stop in his investigation is a funeral home where Raoul's funeral is taking place. No shifty or shady figures lurking about. The crowds seem more like ordinary people. Harry can make out whispers which catch his attention. The whispers are from a small group discussing someone getting out of town on time. We hear someone called Ace announce that the wizard is here while another, Fix, is nervous. Following them, Harry meets three three of the people from the photograph, Fix, Ace, and a third who appears to be a young woman that turns around and kicks Harry's ass, revealing herself to be some sort of magical entity. They th- uh, they basically beat the crap out of Harry and uh, throw him into a dumpster, allowing them to escape. Billy the werewolf then shows up, hauling Harry out of the trash uh, and producing a pizza, which Harry apparently uh, asked him to bring earlier. Harry announces he needs to make a few bribes and asks Billy, do you believe in fairies? And that's where we left it last week. And what a fantastic set of chapters. Um, oh, which is not, yeah, they, it's just solid, like, uh, fantasy realism action, I guess. Um, and that takes us into this week. Uh, so Rob, do you want to take us through chapters 13, 14, 15 and 16? Yeah. So, uh, chapter 13 kicks off with, um, Billy being a, a bit kind of confused, I guess, about the whole fairy fiasco. Fair to say that he probably didn't believe in fairies before this evening. Um, Harry's like, you know, gibbering about, you know, creating magic circle circles. He's going to summon a little fairy friend and, you know, Billy should kind of, you know, back up a bit, otherwise Toot Toot will get scared. And Billy's like, Toot Toot, what you want about? Um, There's it, quite an interest. there's two things that stuck out here, actually, which, because uh, I completely forgot about Billy's involvement in this book, for one thing, um, mm. is that, oh, what was it? He, there's a moment where he's about to take a slice of pizza and Harry just snatches it off of him. And he's like, that, that's not for you, that's for like the yeah. fairies. And, and Billy's like, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> and the other moment is, and it's, I think it's just before the summoning circle is uh, created here. Um, Billy mentions, you know, he should go back to where Harry had the little scuffle with Ace, Fix, and the third person um, to, kind of, to try and get their sense so he can track them down at a later point, or recognise their scent if they need to find them again. And, I mean, that's, it's so clever, because being a werewolf, it's like, well, obviously you should go and do that. But, like, I didn't think of it at all. Like... Yeah. Until he mentions it, I was like, why? why, What? But, um... Yeah. In any case, Harry creates the magic circle, and he very gently and calmly summons Toot Toot. And Toot Toot, like, he rocks up in 
I want to say fully armoured, but armoured isn't quite the word. It's kind of... His armour is like the contents of a children's lunchbox. So he's like a Coke can for a helmet kind of thing, wrapped in Derrily Lunchables as like body armour, and he's got like a toothpick for a sword kind of thing. I mean, it's... The toot-toot is pretty cool and badass, but I imagine being quite a lot bigger than Toot Toot and looking down on this look very dressed in loads of shit you're probably going to not take him too seriously but in any case he's there all armoured up to the teeth and he's he's got like his little party of uh, fairies with him as well his troops I guess you could say um, he makes it very clear that he's aware who Harry is currently working for and he thinks that Harry is trying to recruit him and his allies to fight for Winter um and Harry is kind of like, well, call your beans, son. And, you know, promises to that that's not at all the case. Mab's just a client. Chill out. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. Toot goes on to tell Harry that the Summer Queen is in Chicago and is set up in one of, like, the big buildings. Um, Harry needing more information here than just big buildings offers him the large pizza. and kind of off topic here is it ever mentioned what pizza toppings the fairy likes <laughs> i i have kind of wondered this because um, you know we were talking about um i can't remember if it was last week or the week or a few weeks before um like dresden files like recipes and stuff like that because i know we've talked about the steak sandwich before but yeah, it just got me think. Like I'm sure when I was looking at it the other week, there was like a recipe for like Toot Toot's pizza. Yeah, but, like, it's like the Zar Lord pizza. Cause, yeah, that uh, was it. Toot and his and his allies call uh, call Dresden the Zar Lord uh, for the pizza he offers, which is quite cool. Um, I wonder because I I don't know whether fairies would eat meat. Um, I get the feeling that they'd have like a weird a weird thing about it. Yeah, that's kind um, of what I was thinking, which is why I wasn't sure if it's ever specified if you know what the topping was or anything. But yeah. Um. Anyway, um, Harry like, trades the uh, large pizza with Toot in exchange for him being a guide to take him to. I can never remember how to pronounce it. Is it's a pronounced Mave? I yeah, I always pronounce it is uh is Mave because it's like. It's M A E V E. Yeah. Because um, again, I've always pronounced um, it as Maeve, but I know listening to the audio, it's pronounced very differently. Yeah. <laughs> and it just really threw me off. But we'll go with Maeve. Yeah, uh, I mean, we'll go with Maeve uh, until I remember how he's pronouncing it in the audio, I guess, which will be never. Um. But yeah, he offers um pizza uh, pizza to. to in exchange for him being a guide to take him to Maeve, who is you know, pretty high up in the Winter Court, you could say. Um, and Toot explains that this is going to involve going to Undertown. And hmm. it's at this point we kind of realise that Maeve's role in the Winter Court is the Winter Lady, which is a role of... We mentioned uh, Bob's kind of primer to the uh, courts, You've got like the three queens, and if I remember right, I think the Winter Lady. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is the one below Queen Mab? Yes. Yeah, so, so each side has 
um, kind of like classic witches. You've got like a, 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 a grandmother, a mother, and a daughter figure um, on each, um, mm. and they're kind of like it's very it's very strange because it's all like there's there's levels of power there and there's kind of like a progression but a lot of the time uh you don't the mother might not necessarily become the grandmother because she might die as the mother for instance and then everything kind of shuffles around and um a lot of that gets talked about in this book but uh it's something that we'll keep talking about as we go through um how it all works but yeah essentially they're, they're like power levels and mantles um, and the, the lowest of the three ruling um, ruling uh, matriarchs is uh, uh, Maeve uh, on the winter side as yes. the the winter uh, winter lady I think is what they call her yeah that's what we're no she's known yeah. as anyway but um yeah the winter lady is set up in undertown during the events of the previous book grave peril and Toot decides to, you know, he's going to send one of his little fairy troops called Elodie to guide Harry and Billy through Undertown. And that leads us into Chapter 4, dialing things down ever so slightly. Harry explains Mm -hmm. Undertown to Billy, which is part of the Never Never. I can't remember if it's part of, like, like it's... I don't know how to describe it, because I've always understood it as it's it's part of the Never Never, but it's not the Never Never as such. It's like, um, more similar to Arctis Tor. I guess, so it's like where, where it's where the mortal world and Never Never kind of meet. So there's like, um, because Harry explains it to Billy kind of at the start of this chapter, um, as like Undertown is is a place that it actually exists in real Chicago, uh, because Lake Michigan is is um, particularly like boggy and swampy. Mm. Uh, a lot of the foundations, a lot of the houses sink around it, um, and whole streets even can sink. Um, and what the people of Chicago did is they just started to build on top of the old streets uh, and buildings. And in our world. Um, criminals and homeless people started to take up residence in those deserted buildings. Um, there's some, there's like some cool documentaries around um, people that dwell in the, in those sort of like places. Um, there's a really good one about people who dwell beneath New York as well. Um, anyway, um, uh, what happened in the Dresden world is that criminals and homeless people started to move into those places and they started that there basically started to be a connection that grew between uh, Undertown and the Never Nether, and darker creatures and monsters started to bleed in and move and move the homeless and, uh, people and criminals out, um, i.e. often either killing them or scaring them away, uh, and then setting up their, their kind of residences there with open connections to the Never Nether. Um, and we know that during the events of the last book, um, although we were never told it, because um, there's so much chaos going on and stuff, Maeve made a move into Undertown and set up her court uh, there. So there's kind of like a, a portal from Undertown to her particular spot in the Nether Nether, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's 
way more description than I expected, but thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, like B- Billy and Harry arrive in Undertown and they get greeted by Grimalkin, who is a Malk Malk. Um, and I, f- I fucking love these creatures because they're described as being no bigger than a bobcat and they're quite cat-like anyway. And I, I don't know if that's just because my favorite, I don't know about you, but my favorite one is um, Cat Sif, who appears in like one of the later books. Yeah. And I kind of imagine it being um, a bit like the Cheshire Cat, but more <laughs> violent and aggressive, I suppose. Yeah. Like the Cheshire Cat, if, um, um, if you were having a really bad acid trip. And, you know, Alice in Wonderland <laughs> is a pretty weird acid trip in itself. So... Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of like if a if a tiger could talk, but was also the size of a bobcat, so not they're not that big. Yeah. But um, yeah, we're greeted by this little Grimalkin thing, and he's a bit. Their nature is a bit weird. The mannerisms, their temperament. It, it's kind. I guess it's kind of what you expect. It's just full of snark and like aggression. Like just kind of sees humans as inferior and makes it very kind of clear in the way it acts. But in any case, this thing agrees to take them to Maeve, the Winter Lady. Um, as we go on to that, we get an awesome description of the Winter Court and the mortals captured. <sighs> there are fairies preparing for war here, and they're all wearing these really cool, like stylized World War Two outfits. And I, I don't know about you, I always pictured. Like the SS outfits, like all the, like the black leather and the skulls and that kind of stuff. Um, oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, just because you know, I don't know. I don't really have a justification for that. I guess just winter court and then being a bit not fetish. You would just kind of go the, down that route. But yeah, in any case, we get all that, and there's it's like, like a, a punk thing. Yeah, that's probably a better way. Um, of... That kind of seventies punk feel, I guess, which you know, lots of leather, everything's a bit murky and run down looking. Dairy, yeah. you could say. Um, and while this is all happening, you've got like all these like street musicians and groups of musicians and shit performing, and <laughs> one of the musicians like is playing this trumpet solo, and it's it's so epic that he dies. <laughs> that is the best way to describe that scene. <laughs> it's just, and again, like I completely forgot about this section because it's so, it's just so weird and descriptive. And I guess the closest thing we've had to it really so far is experiencing the never never in the previous book. But like, like, like we were saying when um in the previous book when Lianchi like is like oh. I mean, I can't claim the soul, but my friends can, and the trees start moving, and then it's like it, it feels like an yeah. episode of like you know TV or in a film where they just ran out of budget, so you don't see anything. Like it's just such a contrast to that. Hundred percent. Um, <laughs> um, I this this scene is so overwhelming in a way because it's like, um, so you're picturing like. 
a fairy court and he's like yeah there's like satyrs here and there's like elves and and all sorts of fairy creatures and these cat creatures and stuff it's like okay i can imagine what that looks like then it's like um also they're all in world war ii gear that's been like stylized for fairies and it's like okay i i i can kind of picture that that's fine and he's like also they're having like a a a ballroom ball um, in this place. It's like, right, okay, uh, so SS outfits, but they're having a ballroom ball. And then it's like, also there's this band that are playing the best music you've ever heard um, and this incredibly, like, graceful dancing going towards it. It's the best dancing you've ever seen. Um, and and then there's this epic solo, which is so epic, you can't even imagine it. Um, and the guy playing it dies playing it. <laughs> I mean, that's how I want to go. What? The- <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like this all—all all this mad shit is going on, and then we're introduced finally to the Winter Lady herself, Maeve, and she introduces herself. You know, as mm-hmm. one word, it's you know etiquette and all that, and just Harry being Harry just cuts the bullshit straight through and is like, "Did you kill the Summer Knight?" And you know, being a fae, she she's. She loves a good deal, so she's instantly like, "Oh, I'll tell you anything you want to know, you know, if we make a deal." Um, and then we go into chapter fifteen, and straight off the bat, we're getting like all these like details about this deal. And I think the main suggestion here is, and it's quite an interesting one for future reference as well. Um, Maeve suggests that you know she would take Harry's firstborn um, as part of this deal for information, all this kind of shit. But Harry's like, oh, I don't even have a firstborn, so joke's on you. And then we get like, and this, this I feel is like a classic thing with fairies, especially the winter and summer courts. Everyone is just really, really horny. And I, I feel... Oh my God, yes. And I, I feel they just get more and more horny every time they appear. Because her her solution to this whole thing of Harry not having a firstborn is she, like, produces a member of her court who comes out of, like, this water fountain thing described as being super beautiful, green hair and all that. And her name is Jenny Greenteeth. And she's just like, ah, she is most desirable within the court, but has yet to have anyone really lay hands on her. And just flat out was like, you can sleep with her if you want, and she'll produce you your firstborn. Um, and Dresden's kind of like... And then Harry, the, the bit that got me here is when Harry's like, no, and then Maeve's just like, yeah, that's cool. What yeah. about an orgy? Yeah, it's, just, <laughs> it's what I mean about it being horny, because it's just so casual. It's just like, oh, fair enough. Orgy then? <laughs> <laughs> As if, you know, that's a better solution. But um, yeah, at this point, both Dresden and Billy are hit with like all this glamour kind of like magic, which is meant to get them more and more horny to like agree to it and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, props to Harry. He just grabs a like fucking glass of ice water and pulls it down his pants, which, you know, naturally breaks the spell. Um, <laughs> and Maeve is like, oh, what? You, you dickhead, and just starts like because she's not get she's a bit 
I mean, I, I I feel this applies as well to the um summer lady when we get round to meeting her, is that they come across as like, oh, uh, what are those reality shows like Keeping Up with Kardashians and all that kind of stuff. They're very spoiled, and it it kind of shows they, in their behaviour. Yeah. The second they don't get what they want, they just start raging and throwing their toys out the pram, which is what she's kind of doing here with Dresden. But then. She is cut off completely with the arrival of the winter night, Lloyd Slate. And he just rocks up casual as well, and just presents her with a fucking blade covered in black goo. So... (laughs) 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 And she's just like, why have you given me a blade of black goo and proceeds to rage again? Which I think is quite understandable (laughs) if someone... Tried to give me something. What am I supposed to do with this? Yeah, it's like, oh, good. I'm eating a mochaconna. Why have you given me this blade of black goo, you know? But, um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, she she's kind of like fucked off about this because the, bla- the blade, presumably because of the fucking black goo, is of no use to her now. So she starts picking a mm. fight with Lloyd Slate and. He's fucking unhinged is probably the understatement of the century. But um yeah, in any case, Jenny Green Tea Flight has to kind of calm him down. And he's it's just so I don't know, like it goes from horny to being a bit weird, but not not like I don't even know how to describe it, just everything about the first appearance of the winter night is you're how, how do I describe it? When Harry gets involved with the Winter Court, so like you know, solving some mysteries and crimes within the Summer Court, you're initially thinking the Winter Court are probably good. But I mean, as we go on and on through this, the Winter Court aren't good. They aren't bad, and it's it's very much the case with Summer as well. Like, and I feel as we go on in the books, and it's not this. I apologise. This isn't really a spoiler. We get more winter court throughout the next couple of books and god they're just awful people and (laughs) like you kind of have that feeling and i don't know about you but because summer don't appear for a while after this book you i kind of had that feeling oh summer's probably a lot nicer and then they show up again and you're just like wow (laughs) you're just as bad they're very, they're very extreme, um, and I think it is going back to like, like you were kind of saying that that like spoilt thing, like yeah, um, they they don't just like if they want it. So like in the example of Lloyd Slate, if they want you to be quiet, they don't just like have a have a little like side conversation with you. They inject him with heroin to shut him up, because <laughs> um, they and and it's just that like and it's like. Um, Oh yeah, we want your firstborn. Oh, I'm I'm not I'm not that into this. Right, cool orgy. Um, <laughs> it's just like everything is so fucking extreme and like dialed to fucking eleven um, about them, and and it just makes them horrendous. And they can't they, they just don't do half measures. No, at it's, all. It's ridiculous, but. Yeah, so I keep getting distracted because it's just so fucking bizarre. But um, yeah, at this point, Harry and Billy are just like, you know what? We should probably get the fuck out of here because this is really weird. Um, and they they opt to leave, which you know, <laughs> 
what a shock offends Maeve. So she kicks off again. Yeah. Um, and Harry is kind of explained to Billy at this point that you know, while Maeve is powerful, she probably wouldn't have been powerful enough to kill the Summer Knight. Which There's also a beautiful exchange here where Maeve's like, I'll remember this, Dresden. And Harry's like, I probably won't. This is quite normal for me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was going to mention that in the comments later because it's just classic Dresden snark. And it's yeah. what he's known for. It's what we love about him. Keep it up. <laughs> um, yeah, and as they're leaving, he's you know explaining to Billy that oh she she's not gonna she wouldn't have enough power to kill the Summer Knight, which <laughs> debatable. Um, well, I guess it depends under the right conditions. But um, Harry and Billy then kind of realize they're in Undertown and they no longer have their guide and they don't know the way out. But luckily, as if I just said, they don't have a guide. Elodie shows up again and guides them back to the surface. That, uh, well, I, I'll, talk, I'll bring you up in the comments. I'll bring you up in the comments. Yeah. I, I want to touch <laughs> on that. Yep. <laughs> We're almost done. Um, Harry and Harry and Billy get back to the surface. You know, they're they're relieved and relaxed, and it's everything's chill. And like, as they're going back to like the car and stuff, they get jumped, which no one enjoys. And it turns out. Chapter 16 here. The group that jumped them turns out to be like the group from you know, at the end of the last episode, Ace, Fix. And we get introduced to one more of them who's called Lily, and the muscly woman-y one who is Meryl. Yep. Cool. I'll actually scroll down on my notes to remember now. Um, <laughs> oh, that's written down. Terrific. Um, yeah. Oh no, Lily's gone missing, sorry. Completely forgot about that bit. But yeah, they're jumped by this group and we're kind of getting a bit more from them because, like we said earlier, Harry Harry recognises that there's something magical about them but can't quite pin it. So through all these exchanges, it's revealed that they are changelings who are half fae. Um, and they're part of Light Winter, but they're trying to stay out of the way because Lloyd Slate is a bit of a shithead who keeps giving them abuse. Um, and they were friends with Ronald Raoul, who, as we know at this point, is the Summer Knight, who was kind of keeping them safe, sticking up for him, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and like I say just now, um, there is a fourth one, Lily, who has gone missing, which is why they've gone back to Dresden. And Meryl offers Dresden three times his normal rate to find Lily. And after you know a little bit of debate around this, he just he accepts the case because you know money's money, gotta pay the bills. You know how it is, twenty first century. Um, Dresden tells Billy, you know, I'm gonna go to Murphy because she works for the police. We can find out more about Lloyd Slate. Um, and you know Billy believes, and Dresden gets back in the car except there's someone in the back of the car with him, and it's Elaine, who is beaten and close to death in the passenger seat. And that is where we end this chapter. Whew! There is a lot there. <laughs> yeah. the, these were some meaty, meaty chapters uh, to, to break into. 
uh, and that we have a lot of things that we want to talk about. Um, so uh, let's get some of the quick ones out of the way. Um, toot toot, uh, absolutely great having in, having him uh, appear. Um, I get serious Rufio vibes from Hook. Yeah, um, I get that. With, with and the and his his fairy crew. Um, absolutely, I, I just I. I think Jim Butcher loves dressing toot toot. Is something I've noticed. I've noticed um, that too. Every time he appears, every yeah, time he appears from here, he's just got more and more crap on him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and as we get into the later books, toot toot changes a little bit, and um, as he changes, he's able to like use different things and stuff, and uh, it, it's really cool. Um, so I really enjoy that. Um, and I, I really enjoy like Toot Toot's personality. Um, cause there's a, there's a bit where like Harry was saying, uh, Harry's asking Toot Toot, like, which side do you, do you fall in on like winter or summer? And Toot Toot's like, well, mostly summer's like the people that are a bit like chill and just kind of, you know, like to lounge about and stuff. And winter's kind of people who are a bit like, not great uh, sometimes, or, or a bit harsh and violent at times, um, but but also kind of like tough and and kind of like battley and stuff. And Harry's like, okay, so so which one are you? And like, uh, Tucci's just like, I can't remember. I'm just thinking about pizza. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I I like about him, um, and I would love life to be that simple sometimes. Same. Um, so, so that's very cool, um, but not much to really, really say on Toot. Um, Undertown, um, such a great like feature of Chicago. Um, I, I'm really surprised it took this long for Jim to dive into it. Um, like the idea of a city beneath the city is just so ripe for like fantasy realism. Um, I like. In some ways, I, I I'd have as a as a writer, I would have dove into that in book one, um, but I I think it pays off really nicely that it's taken this long, and and Dresden's like, yeah, it's just always been there, and I just haven't had a reason to go yet. Um, it makes it feel that, very rich. Because, I mean, kind of going back to the timeline, it's if you read the timeline first, or if you read the short story uh, Restoration of Faith, and maybe the Welcome to the Jungle graphic novel. It establishes... I mean, it, I wouldn't say it establishes the world right away. It's kind of like what we've been saying. The world is already there. It's lived in. And we're just kind of... Yeah. Yeah. That's my train of thought there. I, 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 no, no, I completely get... I completely agree. It feels... Um, it doesn't feel like Jim's just pulling something out of nowhere. It feels like... Yeah, this was just always here. We just haven't had a reason to be there to go there yet. It, it's it's very, uh, it feels very real. Yeah, I think that's that's the thing. Um, and um, it, that's that's something really really nice about Undertown. Um, I also just think that the the descriptions of it are really interesting. Um, it's somewhere that we go back to quite a few times, and. Um, it's always like this kind of murky maze of a place that um, is very easy to get lost in, I guess. 
Oh, defos. Um, yeah. So, and I, I always like it because it feels kind of traditional D and D like, like it's kind of like a dungeon almost. Like there's all these like rooms that are connected, um, and and there's a lot of like weird creatures uh, knocking about in the shadows. So very fun. Um, we we talked about Grim Malkin uh, and the Malks. Um, not much more to say there, but yeah, really really cool creatures. Uh, and definitely they will be popping up more and we'll be talking yeah. about them more as they pop up. Um, I think, again, yeah, the Winter Court, we, we pretty much touched upon that as as uh, we talked about it. Um, but the the scene where the the man is playing that trumpet solo and dies playing it, there's a great moment where everyone's like dancing and stuff and enjoying themselves. And then everyone in the room stops to witness this solo. And there's this like beautiful, like we're, we're witnessing the passing of, of a great artist kind of thing. Um, and it says that like everyone is silent just for a second as this man plays his heart out. Um, and I think that that's so, that's such a beautiful moment. Um, and so haunting as well. Cause it's like, all these people obsessed with like death and extremes and excess. Um, and it just, it just defines them so perfectly. So uh, yeah, I really like that. Pat on the back for, for Jim there. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so the, the like the next kind of bit um, where we can talk a bit more because we kind of we talked a little bit about it, but we'll we'll talk a bit more about it here. Uh, it was like uh, Maeve and the the kind of seduction scene. Yeah. Um, I I think the way that glamour is used, like weaponized lust, I guess, um, is really interesting. Uh, and Jim does a really good job of, um. Like Dresden starts to self justify like why he should take the deal and why he should uh sleep with uh Jenny Green Teeth and and all this. Um and because the prose is like from Dresden's inner monologue and his and and we we see him go from being like against this to then he starts to be like, Well, it couldn't be that it wouldn't be that dangerous. Like, and really, is it not about like, should I, shouldn't I just live a little kind of thing? Mm. Uh, and he goes down that sort of route and you can see the, the trap that the glamour is laying um, as an outsider. Um, it, it creates a good bit of tension. And, and Jim obviously plays up for a moment that there is, there is like a feeling of like, Oh, he might actually take this. Um, I think he's done quite well. Uh, what are your thoughts, Rob? Kind of very similar to yours. I mean, I'm not really sure how to expand on it, really. The, I mean, it. Well, I guess one thing to do with the seduction scene that got me thinking. I was. This is kind of jumping ahead a tiny bit with Lloyd Slate as well, but mm. I mean, as they were stabbing him with heroin and shit. We know he's a bit of an addict, and we we kind of find out more and more about him, and that he's just a bit of a twat in general. I tried to say something worse, but I just couldn't bring myself to. 
But um, fair enough. He is. He's just a piece of work. He's a nasty person. Like there's lots of implications with him to do with like rape and murder and all this kind of stuff. But as as far as I can remember, we don't know much about Lloyd Slate prior to him becoming the Winter Knight. Um, and if we do, then I've forgotten it. So we'll find out another time. But it just kind of made me think that is Lloyd was Lloyd Slate possibly like your average Joe until he was dragged into the whole winter court shit. And then that kind of, because what we know about the winter mantle as well, and that kind of thing is it is very mm. animalistic and plays into that quite heavily. So is it just the fact like Lloyd Slate's a murdering, raping asshole because of that. And it's kind of encouraged by the behavior of the winter court as well. Yeah, um, I was actually going to talk about. Um, I'm trying to. I'm trying to word this in a way that doesn't. That isn't too spoilery. Yeah. Um, but there are traits in Lloyd Slate that I see in other characters in the series who later have more to do with with Winter. If that makes sense to you. Yeah, I definitely get that. Like he, he definitely has a degree of snark to him um, that other characters in the series have. Yeah, there's a big sense of arrogance and entitlement as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think he shares some weaknesses uh, with, with other characters in the series. Um, and... I don't know, like, I mean, he serves as a cautionary tale later on, and and you can really see it looking back now and, and rereading this. You can really see where all that comes from. Um, I and, and I could fully believe that Lord that Lloyd Slate was an all right guy. I mean, I think uh, we learn a bit more about Lloyd Slate's history from Murphy later in this, and hmm. um, I can't remember exactly what what his history is. So it'd be interesting to talk about that when we know. Um, but yeah. That's, uh, yeah, he's, he's a, he is a very interesting character and, and he is definitely like just a, a depraved monster at this point when we, when we meet him. Yeah. He's kind of reminds me a bit. And I don't, I don't know why, because thinking about it now, they, it's like very little in common with this other character, but it, it always makes me think of Bane from like Batman. Yeah, I can see that, but I'm I'm not really sure why. Now that I think about it, <laughs> maybe it's the the heroin side yeah, of things. That, the the injection. It, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I if anything, I would actually say that it, I can see. More with the um, the Christopher Nolan vein, uh, where he's kind of like that dark reflection. Mm. Um, yeah, he, I, I Lloyd Slate is a character that we'll, that we'll come back to a few times, and his story is very interesting. And I think Jim chooses. Uh, we don't really see the fall of Lloyd Slate into this depravity, but then we see where he goes next. Uh, and I think Jim chose a really interesting point um, for us to meet him. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk about that more as we get there. 
Um, but yeah, the, the the seduction scene as a whole is uh, it's a great piece of like. Um, I, it's very hard to do like um, a character being forced into something or going against their will in in a way that's not blatant. And I think Jim does it. I mean, it's still it it's it's obvious to an outsider, but it's subtle enough that you can understand how he would miss it within himself. Yeah. Um. Uh. So I think it's it's very it is quite well crafted that bit. Um. I like that. Um. So the next thing I wanted to pull out. Um. There is a moment where Jim sets sets up that getting out of Undertown is going to be this big thing. Um. And it's going to be very difficult for for Harry and Billy. And it's been set up in a few different ways. Like Billy even says that. Grim Malkin said that he would guide Harry and Billy to the court of Maeve, but he never said that he would guide them out again. Um, and I also feel like Billy being here, like Billy doesn't really add much during the the court scenes, apart from Harry kind of explaining the rules of being around the Winter Court, which uh, there is like a necessity for that. But I think that there was a draft of this this section where Harry and Billy had to find their way out of Undertown. Yeah. And I think I got cut. I can easily believe that because it just seems weirdly out of place. And then very coincidental that the little fairy dude pops up again. Yeah. LED pops up and it's just like, I'll guide you out. And then that's it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, there are short stories and uh, and there are even main books where we go back to Undertown and there are, there's much more of that kind of exploration and, and having to find find your way through Undertown and stuff that Jim does. And I even wonder if one of those short stories or one of those sections was taken from this. Because um, I feel like Billy would have been a good person to help Harry out of Undertown by like following scents and yeah. stuff like that. Um, and I, and I could even see like Billy and werewolf form fighting a Malk or something would have been quite interesting. Like cat and dog. Um, Definitely. but, uh, I also understand why it was maybe cut because, um, I mean like, like we've just been going through those chapters. They are meaty chapters and to add in another section maybe would have felt a bit excessive. Um, yeah, but I, that's definitely one that if if we ever get the opportunity uh, to ask a question of Jim Butcher, that's I think that might be one that I would ask him. <laughs> we'll add it to the list uh, of questions. Add it to the list of questions, certainly. Uh, cool. Uh, so then we get to Changelings, and um, there's a great moment where Billy asks, I think it's Merrill. He asks Merrill like. Um, so you're having problems with the the winter night and the summer night and stuff. And obviously, yeah, you've got a, a mum who, who's human or, or a dad who's human. Why don't you, why don't you ask the, the magical parent on your side to step in? I'm sure they could probably do something for you. Um, and Meryl is just, just straight out says to Billy. Um, yeah. My father is a troll who raped my mother. Um, and just and 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 there's like a moment of like 
um, awkwardness, I guess. Um, but it's it's very it, it is it's interesting to that that Jim has pulled out this this character um, and the way that Meryl. I I don't know I that that said that that interaction just tells me so much about Meryl, um, in a way because mm. it's it's like obviously this is I mean, um, I I'm trying to choose my words carefully here and make sure I'm saying the right thing, but I think um, Meryl has obviously confronted that this is a thing about her origin and who she is and what happened to her mum. And, and obviously that, that there's a lot of negative emotion around that. Um, and she is just like, yep, this is the situation. This is what happened. Um, and I am never, ever going to get in contact with my father because why the fuck would I want to? Hmm. Um, and, and I just feel like in that, you get all that in that one one line, um, and and I feel like Billy and Harry also get that right there. I mean, I don't know. Did you get that from that? A little bit, yeah. It's kind of made me feel sorry for the character as well. Yeah. Um, I was just trying to because there's a similar concept in another book that I read years ago, and. I'm trying to like remember what the name was, and weirdly, I think it might be Summer Night. <laughs> I'm, Do you mean yeah. you read Summer Night? <laughs> yeah, because it, it was a similar thing where like it inherited like all these traits from like the supernatural, whatever. But then it was revealed that like the mother was raped by this weird thing, or whatever. And now I, I, it, it's very similar to this. So I'm wondering if maybe I am just remembering this. I I feel like um, it's interesting because it also serves a bit of like a a cautionary tale almost. Because um, like ha- Harry almost had the same thing happen with with Jenny Greenteeth. In a way, I mean the glamour being used and stuff. It was definitely against his will, um, yeah. and if he'd have fallen for it, um, I, I almost feel like there's a, there's a bit here of Jim saying like, yeah, there, there are stories like Margaret Le Fay and Harry's father where um, people from our world and people from the supernatural world like Romeo and Juliet style come together uh, and fall in love, and and it's beautiful, and they produce children and, and yeah there are complications but there there is also like love there and stuff and then there is also a predator prey relationship between the supernatural and the the mortal world and that is also a, a sexual predator relationship at times um and and i i am impressed in a way that jim doesn't uh shy away from that at all He's mm. he's quite open about it, because um, a lot a lot of authors would shy away from it, um, and and I think he treats it. I think the way that it's treated is like, I mean, Mer- Meryl isn't like, oh, this is such a big thing for me, and and I'm out to kill my father because of what he did. It's it's more like 
no, my father's just a shit and this is terrible, but I can't do anything about this now. So it's just a part of my identity and I accept it. Um, and, and yeah, it is, it is sad, but I'm, I'm living with it. And I think that that's really positive in a way. Yeah. It's definitely kind of, I don't want to say empowering. I don't know if that's the right word. Maybe it is the right word. I don't know. I, I think in a way, it's like, it's kind of, it's owning your own, uh, it's, it's, it's owning, it's, sorry, go ahead. Acceptance. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of in Game of Thrones, like the very first series where Tyrion is talking to Jon Snow and is like, um, wear, your, wear your insecurities as armour and then no one can ever hurt you. Hmm sort of thing um and uh and I, I like that um i think that that's a really positive message cool um and then we just get to that that last cliffhanger with elaine in the car and harry kind of doing the whole like don't you die on me um <laughs> don't you die on me you son of a situation. bitch um and it's such a great a great cliffhanger because it's just like you can feel all those emotions just suddenly kick in. And there's such a moment of like, right, yeah, we went into the lion's den. We dealt with Maeve, this psychotic fairy. We dealt with um, these, like, uh, changelings. Everything's going to be all right. Uh, Harry's just going to chill out. Like, the mission is over. It's all good. Um, and then it's like, oh, but also uh, Harry's long-lost love is Dying in his back seat. <laughs> um, yeah, and and that is just a classic Jim Butcher chapter end. It really um, is. If like, ever I saw. It's a proper gasp, isn't it? Like, you read the end of the chapter yeah. thinking, this will be it for the night. And then you're like, <gasps> and then have to read another ten chapters. I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> and before you know it, you've read 17 books. <laughs> oh man uh s such the power of dresden files um <laughs> it's it's fantastic um and, and a great point to end on it unless there's anything else you wanted to throw in on these chapters um not really i think you managed to hit everything that i wanted to mention at least and i think everything on the notes has also been mentioned fantastic then um right do you want to take us out yeah as as always thank you for the support um we've just hit over pardon me four thousand downloads which is you know double what we had a few months ago funnily enough um yeah we, we seem to be going at a pretty good rate and i know i think we were both a bit worried that when we when we took a few weeks break at the end of december we were worried that was going to affect the audience, uh, listeners, and on downloads and all that kind of stuff. But no, we seem to still be going pretty strong, which is which is great for uh, the new year. But then we're in a national lockdown again, so I don't have much to do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, thank you for the support as usual. Um, don't forget to share, follow, subscribe. We're on all your major social media platforms such as the Facebook, the Twitters, 
the Instagrams. Um, you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Play, iTunes, whatever you want to call it. I don't know if they're the same thing. I'm old. Boomer. Um, but yeah, uh, thanks. And next week we'll be checking out chapters 17, 18, 19, and 20 of Summer Night. So tune in for that. Crack open a can of Coke because you've been listening to the Paranet podcast with your hosts, me, Rob Davis, and me, Patrick Lund. And we will see you next week. Bye. <laughs>